grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Some of you might know this from a popular song, and if you listen to 70s rock, you would know there's a song by Pink Floyd called Time. And in the song, they're unpacking what it means to make use of your time, or more from their point of view, what it is to waste your time. In the first half of the song, the song is talking about ticking away the dull moments that you waste away in your daily drudgery. And the second half of the song then gives you this urgent call to do something, but without much hope. You run and run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. And in the closing refrain, they say, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. They're quoting a poet, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Henry David Thoreau was known for his seclusive life. He once spent two and a half years in a cabin in the woods where he spoke to no one and wrote about his experiences and thoughts. And in his writings, he had that phrase, what it means to live in quiet desperation. When you think about these four fishermen in our story, Andrew and Peter, James and John, what were the moments of quiet desperation they were experiencing in their day-to-day fishing lives before Jesus came along? What are the moments in your day-to-day lives where you feel the quiet desperation that leads you nowhere? We've been talking about the gospel apocalypse, which is a, a fancy way of saying the times when the gospel of Jesus Christ and his presence confront us. They reveal something to us. God appears and reveals something to you and your heart. And he summons you to do something. Now, summons might seem to you to be a bad word. Maybe you think of the courtroom summons and you're getting summoned for a a witness or a trial. But in the gospel, the summons is a good thing. It's a good thing, and it is changing everything for our lives. We'll look at three ways that the gospel summoned the first disciples, how timing is everything, how the message is clear, how the impact is shocking. I happen to have my watch on today, and it reminded me of someone I once knew who would always time the sermon. And I'm not going to point any fingers to try to figure out who's out there. But, you know, there's probably a few of you that are keeping track of your watch as the sermon goes along. And a good Lutheran sermon is 20 minutes. Or as my grandfather said, if you can't make them good, make them short. 
timing is everything. And John the Baptist, along with Mark's preaching and writing, was not a message that would waste any time. Think of how urgent John the Baptist was in his preaching not to waste any time or mince any words in drawing people to repentance. And in doing so, in being so outspoken and clear and urgent with his message, it ended up putting him into prison. Our verse begins with John being arrested. Why would Mark consider it important to write that John the Baptist was arrested and put into prison right before Jesus began preaching? It says that John was arrested, put into prison, and then Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's showing us that the gospel is going to cause a dramatic reaction. That John the Baptist's preaching was seizing people was reaching out with the power of God to reach people who are wandering, lost, and living lives of quiet desperation. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately for John, one of those people was King Herod. And when that message reached his ears, he couldn't stand by and let it stand. Because John was challenging the very king and saying that his life needed repentance. His life, along with all these lowly Judeans and Galileans whose lives surely needed to change, John the Baptist challenged the very king. There's a saying from the movie Dead Poets Society, you might remember, Carpe Diem, if you've seen that movie. And Carpe Diem is usually translated, seize the day. In the movie, Robin Williams is a poetry and English teacher, and he is trying to get his students to stop living through the drudgery of life and and do something meaningful. And so he uses that phrase, seize the day. Don't let time pass you by. Don't let time waste away in quiet desperation. Seize the day. Now, there's a lot of ways that I could agree with that, but there's a lot of ways that the American lifestyle and culture has taken that phrase and turned it on its head. For instance, a lot of Americans think that seize the day means you have to get everything now. You have to make your dreams come true. You have to reach your goals. You have to do everything right now to make your life more amazing. Hashtag Y-O-L-O, I had to look that up. You only live once. However, that American consumer mindset of seizing the day is not what Jesus has in mind. No, seize the day for Jesus is actually turned upside down. Instead of carpe diem, it's diem carpe. It's not you seizing the day, but Jesus is preaching that the day is seizing you. Timing is everything. And what Jesus is doing, what he's preaching, is a carpe diem that is trying to seize people, seize their lives, seize their hearts, seize their hopes and dreams, 
and transform them into his purposes. So it's the day of the gospel that is coming. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. So the time for everyone from the moment he preaches this all the way down into our lives is today. The gospel is trying to seize every one of us. And when it does, its message is clear. Jesus' message here is very clear. It's not missing words. This is Jesus' first sermon, as far as we know, and in Mark's style of quick summary statements, he captures it in just a few words. And Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. Now, if you were timing this sermon, you'd probably be a record time. But what Mark is not saying is, is as important as what Mark is saying. There's a lot that's left unsaid, and in the actual sermons Jesus preached, we know, he probably went on for hours. And when he did, he would have unpacked a lot more of what this meant, like the Sermon on the Mount. Unpacking this idea of the kingdom and the gospel is so crucial for us understanding what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is preaching the gospel, and it's the gospel of God's kingdom, which means that the kingdom has come. And in order to have the kingdom come, you have to have the king. The king has to be anointed. The king has to be enthroned. The king has to be present. The king has to be doing his kingly works, bringing his kingdom into your presence, into your lives, and that's what Jesus is doing. The reason we call him Jesus Christ is because Christ means the anointed king. And his kingdom comes here, which means that God is coming to confront all other kingdoms. And all other kingdoms are kingdoms of evil. Kingdoms of their own power. Kingdoms that are trying to seize you every day, and maybe they even have. Kingdoms that want to rule in your heart and have a place in your life. To control you. To exert their influence. To spread their lies. To make you think something that is just not true about God. In the movie Dead Poets Society, you hear about a young man, Neil Perry. And Neil is one of those young men whose dad has it all scripted for him. His dad is very rigid, very demanding, and he's got his life all figured out. And Neil's going to do exactly what his father said. The last thing Neil would want to do is try to go against his dad because his dad would never stand for it. Well, there's a moment in the movie where Neil does just that. And following this idea of carpe diem, he follows his own heart and his passion for acting. His dad forbids him to get involved in these silly plays, and Neil does it anyways. And he's up on stage, and he gives an amazing performance, pours out his heart, and leaves with a round of applause. His dad gets him into the car, takes him home, and says, I'm taking you out of the school, and you're going to Harvard. Harvard. You're going to be a doctor. You see in Neil's eyes the quiet desperation. How his father is just thinking that he's got it all figured out and robs Neil 
of his love and passion. It leads to this resignation, this desperation that has no hope. What the gospel is trying to confront you with is not a message like Neil's dad. There's lots of times in our lives where we might get a false image of God, that God is rigid, that God is demanding, that God has it all scripted for you, and it's got to look just the way that God imagined it. Your life has to have everything in place, everything in order, success, family, money, whatever it might be. Education, popularity, success. That God has that all figured out. And if you step out of line, if you, if you do one thing that's going to upset him, well, then he's going to take you out of this life you're living and put you into something miserable. No, the gospel confronts us with something else. Instead, it confronts us with a message that summons you to exactly what your heart is longing for, what you want, what is so much bigger than the rigid, humdrum, scripted life you might imagine, that the upsetting things, the things that trouble us most deeply are most likely to be the things where God is working most fervently to convince you of the impact of his kingdom to show you what he wants you to know and stop ignoring it in quiet desperation and repression. This is what it means when Jesus says repent. Because the message is clear to these fishermen. And Jesus is pointing ahead that there's something greater. He doesn't explain what it is, but he says there's something greater coming. The king is here. And the impact of that message is shocking. When these four fishermen hear the call of the gospel, what are they thinking? What was it about Jesus that would cause these four fishermen to give up their jobs, to leave their nets, to leave their father in the boat, and go off after something that Jesus hasn't told them what it is. Think of all the questions you would have. You might have lots of questions if Jesus came along and said, follow me. Well, you might ask, where are we going? When will we get there? What, what about the nets? What about the fish we caught in the nets? What about the money we could earn with the fish we caught that are in the nets? And above all, what about Zebedee? You get to the end of the story and it's kind of like, well, see you later, Dad. And Zebedee's in the boat with the hired servants. There is something about Jesus' impact in our lives that is shocking, and it does not answer all the questions. In the first part of Jesus' message, the gospel is declarative. In the second part of his sermon, it is imperative. The declarative part of the gospel is that the king has come and he is bringing salvation. And the second part is, now follow him. Repent, believe, and follow are the three first imperatives in Mark. 
And when you think about Mark as the type of preacher who has imperatives, it is imperative that you listen and you respond. These are the three things that come out. Repent, believe, and follow. Now, Jesus doesn't answer all the questions about where you're going, what it's going to look like, when you're going to get there. We would like to know, when am I going to get there? When am I going to get rid of this anxiety? When am I going to finally feel I'm over this shame from my past? When am I finally going to be something instead of feeling like I'm nothing? Jesus doesn't answer those questions. But his timing is perfect. His purpose is great. All these four fishermen know is that there's something bigger than what they currently have in quiet desperation of their fishing lives. It's not about destinations, it's about direction. All Jesus does to convince us of this is says, look at me. All he does is reveal himself. And so the ministry unfolds and we see the works of Jesus. We see the character of Jesus. We see the death of Jesus. And most importantly, we see the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he tells us to look at. That's what he tells us is the direction we're going. But how that's going to look in your daily life, that's God's continued work. You know, Henry David Thoreau said, most men leave lives of quiet desperation. You might think that he was a big traveler. You might think he must have gone and sailed the oceans and traveled to foreign places and met all sorts of amazing people. Well, he never really left his small property and his small village. In fact, he spent most of his time within two miles of his house walking through the woods. Every day he'd get up and walk. He'd walk a couple miles, several miles, several hours. One time he spent a whole day looking at a pond. The point he was making in his writings was not that a man needs to travel to distant places geographically, but a man needs to travel within. That the traveling we need to do is within our own, what he said, inside of our ribcage. The places we've been and the places God's taking us, it's all right there inside of you. To repent is to be transformed in your mind. To believe is to have this newfound confidence and trust and loyalty in your heart. To follow means that your mind and your heart are set on Jesus. He doesn't explain what's ahead other than saying, just look at me. The interesting thing about Carpe Diem is that a lot of people have gotten the translation wrong. And I suppose if you're a Latin scholar and you look up what Latin scholars might say, they'd, they'd complain because seize the day isn't exactly what the phrase means. It actually means pluck the day. That carpe means to pluck like to pluck a ripe fruit. And while it's similar in its meaning, it does bring a little bit different picture that 
The context is plucking a ripe fruit. It's like another poet said later on, gather ye rosebuds while you may. The meaning is not just to seize the day as in eat, drink, and be merry, and do everything you can right now to be happy. It's watch the ripening of the fruit around you. And not all fruits ripen at the same time. Not all seasons are the same. But when God puts a ripe fruit in front of you, pluck it. And even more so, from God's point of view, you are the ripe fruit. And it's not you seizing the day, it's God seizing you, plucking you because he knows your heart is ripe. It's ripe for his grace. It's ripe for his hope. It's ripe for him to do exactly what he wants to do. And that's why you're listening right now. The summons of Jesus Christ and his kingdom changes everything. The timing is everything. The message is clear and the impact is shocking. Amen.